This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, October 8th. Today, how President Trump's Syria policy could escalate Middle East conflict, 24 hours on the GM picket line, and a Supreme Court case on LGBT rights. We're on the brink of potentially a seismic development in Syria. One that could reset the table strategically in many ways, perhaps even trigger a new refugee exodus into Iraq, and create all sorts of new security challenges that we've yet to contemplate. Or, not much may happen. Ashan Tharoor writes about foreign affairs for The Post. He's been covering President Trump's recent announcement on a change in policy on Syria. Trump wants to withdraw some U.S. troops from the northern part of Syria, the part that borders Turkey, and he'd allow Turkish troops to take over. Syria was supposed to be a short-term hit. Just a very short-term hit, and we were supposed to be in and out. So the president announced on Sunday, this is after he had a phone call with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, that if and when the Turks decide to go into northeastern Syria, the military presence of the United States would not impede that action. If you go back and look at our speeches, I would say we want to bring our troops back home from these endless wars. And we're like a police force over there. We're policing. We're not fighting, we're policing. And this announcement has been very controversial because it gives Turkey free reign over territories on the border and because it looks like the president is suddenly abandoning the Kurds who live there, an important military ally. So effectively saying that, okay, we've been patrolling this border for a while in a kind of joint agreement with the Turks as well as our local Kurdish partners, But if the Turks carry out this invasion, which the Kurds are fearing and have been trying to hedge and defend against, we won't do much to stop him. And people saw that as the U.S. kind of giving a green light to Turkey, right? Saying, if you want to go for it, we're not going to stop you. That's exactly how it was interpreted by officials and politicians in Washington, by the Turks in Ankara, and by the Kurds on the ground in Syria. The units there who have been fighting alongside the United States felt stabbed in the back. So let me ask first, why is it that Turkey wants to invade Syria? Well, of course, Turkey shares a huge border with Syria. It's been on the front lines of the Syrian conflict over the over more than half a decade now. It hosts millions of Syrian refugees, and it, it has a stake in what's happening with all the chaos that's happening on the other side of the border. It has in the past already intervened. It, it, it launched a few incursions on various parts of Syrian territory, pushing against factions that it didn't like on the other side of the border. And it sees, you know, an action now as a potential pathway towards creating space to repopulate parts of Syria with the refugees currently living in Turkey. And then, of course, there's a whole different issue vis-a-vis the Kurds. And that was going to be my next question. Who are the Kurds? Well, historians cast the Kurds, and the Kurds themselves say this, that they are the victims of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. 
This is the only distinct ethnic group of its size that has no state of its own. We're talking about a, a population of around 40 million people around thereabouts uh, living in sort of scattered in Iran, Iraq, Syria and Turkey. Of course, the Kurds are not a monolith. They have different divisions linguistically, culturally, tribally, and politically as well. But for the sake of this conversation, the Kurds you should think about are the ones operating in northern Syria alongside the United States, the Syrian Democratic Forces. The SDF has been, you know, they represent the troops on the ground that really pushed against the Islamic State. We do get along great with the Kurds. We're trying to help them a lot. Don't forget, that's their territory. We have to help them. I want to help them. Go ahead. What's next? They fought with us. They fought with us. They died with us. They died. We lost tens of thousands of Kurds died fighting ISIS. They led the line that took Raqqa, the de facto capital of the Islamic State in Syria. They lost thousands of men. They died for us and with us and for themselves. They died for themselves. But they're great people. And we have not forget. We, We don't forget. I don't forget what happens someday later, but I can tell you that I don't forget. These are great people. And they've been operating in tandem with the United States across the board in patrolling uh, the border and now also garrisoning uh, the camps where ISIS detainees are being held. So they're really part and parcel of the U.S. mission in Syria. But the Turks see the SDF as uh, direct analogs to a group called the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is an organization that's a separatist group based in Turkey that's fought for decades against the Turkish state, that's recognized both by the United States and Turkey as a terrorist organization, and which has a pretty extreme agenda. And they see the U.S. in Syria basically acting alongside a terrorist group. So, at least for the last few years, the way the U.S. has seen the Kurdish population in northeastern Syria is a group of people that have helped them contain ISIS and fight back against ISIS. But for Turkey, they see this group of Kurds as linked to this terrorist group that they're trying to battle against. Or, or exactly the same as the PKK. That's the Turkish line. They, they don't really see any daylight between the two. But for the sake of what's happening, the United States for a long time has tried to maintain a plausible deniability that the SDF aren't the same thing as the PKK, that the SDF really have been the good guys on the ground. You have Americans volunteering to fight alongside them. So it it has raised a lot of awkward questions, both about longstanding American policy, as well as uh, the new feelings about Turkey that are in Washington right now. There's not much love for Erdogan, and there's not much love for his positions on a lot of issues. And I wonder if part of the reason why Kurds in northeastern Syria were willing to partner with the U.S. to try to defeat ISIS was because they've kind of been in this historically vulnerable situation, they don't really have a country of their own, and that they thought that being able to partner with the U.S. on defeating ISIS would mean that they would have the support and protection of the U.S. going forward. There was that hope, for sure. They, right now, the SDF presides over what is a de facto state, I mean, an enclave in northeastern Syria that they call Rojava, Rojava has its embassies elsewhere in the world and offices elsewhere. They want and they want to pursue some kind of independent democratic future of their own, though few governments in the West believe that's actually a viable possibility. But here they are on the ground with a de facto state and hoping to defend what they have. So then why is it that we've gotten to this point where President Trump 
is willing to kind of throw away this relationship with Kurds in northeastern Syria that have been crucial to fighting back ISIS and instead basically telling President Erdogan in Turkey, like, go ahead and invade if you want. Uh, He's explained it pretty simply himself uh, in the last couple of days. This is not exactly a, a decision motivated by strategy in the Middle East as much as his own political incentives at home. He's said as much on Monday. I campaigned on the fact that I was going to bring our, our soldiers home and bring them home as rapidly as possible. I, we, all together, you, we defeated and took over 100 percent of the ISIS caliphate. Everybody said that was going to be an impossible thing to do. I did it and I did it quickly because we have a great military now. And he sees this departure in Syria. It's not clear what scale of departure we're talking about right now, but he really wants to have the message come across that he is withdrawing and that he's handing off the responsibility of stabilizing this crisis, dealing with you know all the conflicts there to others. And he has now framed it as, oh, it's Turkey's problem, so Turkey should take care of it. And I think in some ways this really aligns with his sort of America first attitude. And even when we think about the way that President Trump has talked about the Middle East in the past, that it's a messy place, it's very confusing, that it's kind of clear that he has impatience for the complexities of the region. And I wonder if that's part of it, too, that he just feels like exhausted from having to deal with this and says this shouldn't be our problem anymore. It's abundantly clear that he did the, that he desperately wants to wash his hands of all of this. But what's happened uh, as a result in his in his impatience with the situation is that he has seems to have genuinely blindsided many officials in his administration. He has not really apparently listened to many of the briefings on the on the facts on the ground and and he's taken tons of people by surprise. Forget about his own, you know, Pentagon and State Department. The Kurds had no idea this was coming. Uh, European partners involved in the coalition against ISIS did not know this was happening. And so he's been basically governing by by impulse and fiat as opposed to a genuine process of deliberation and and coordination. And for U.S. officials, people within the administration, people within the military, when they've been warning President Trump about maybe we should not be doing this. What are they what are they worried about happening? They're concerned about a range of things. First of all, there's a fear that if abandoned by the United States, the Syrian Kurds will have nowhere to go but uh, to turn toward assistance from the Assad regime in Damascus. That'll be a scenario where in the minds of Washington strategists, Iranian and Russian geopolitics win out over America. Then there's the real concern about actually stabilizing the region and dealing with the Islamic State. The SDF right now garrisons a whole range of camp where there are thousands of ISIS detainees. And there's a fear that if they are distracted by having to fight the Turks, uh, they're going to have to either let um, prisoners may escape, they may release these ISIS fighters. And so we may see the seeds of a new resurgence of jihadism in an area where the U.S. and its Kurdish allies expended a lot of treasure and blood uh, fighting. And I think it's notable that even other Republican lawmakers have come out really strongly against the president on this and have used really forceful words to say that they think that this is wrong. That's true. Lindsey Graham, a senator from South Carolina who's been carrying water for Trump on so many other fronts, was vocal on Monday in his disapproval. He said this could be a disaster. This impulsive decision by the president has undone all the gains we've made thrown the region into further chaos. Iran is licking their chops. 
And if I'm an ISIS fighter, I've got a second lease on life. Mitch McConnell came out against it. Trump's former UN envoy, Nikki Haley, came out against it. The Republican foreign policy establishment doesn't have the same aversion to extended troop commitments and involvement in overseas conflict as Trump does. This is a real ideological divide within the Republican Party, and we're going to see that play out on its own terms going forward as well. And I wonder what this decision could mean for America's standing on the world stage. Well, this isn't exactly the first time the United States has let down Kurds in the Middle East. There's a whole history, really quite tragic history of Kurdish disappointment with the United States or feelings of betrayal uh, in the past. But what is quite emphatic about this moment is the seeming complete strategic incoherence of it. Uh, the degree to which Trump has not coordinated any of this with his allies, the extent to which everyone has felt blindsided by his decision-making, and the kind of cloak of uncertainty that it that it drapes around the whole region, uh, it's really made a mess for all, and, and, and nobody seems to be winning from it beyond Trump's putative adversaries. Ishan Tharoor covers foreign affairs for The Post. You can subscribe to his daily column and newsletter called Today's Worldview. Find a link at postreports.com. What we're asking of General Motors is simple and fair. We are standing up for fair wages. So in mid-September, the contract between the United Auto Workers and General Motors lapsed um, without the two parties agreeing on a new one. Eli Rosenberg is a reporter for The Post. The economy has been humming in recent years. GM has doing, been doing quite well. And I think there's just a general sense that the workers have been not getting a fair enough slice of that pie. So about 50,000 members of the union decided to go on strike. So it's about three weeks now that all GM facilities and some parts production plants in this country have shut down, basically bringing the company's operations in this in this country mostly to a halt. At larger GM plants, the strikes have gotten a lot of attention. They've become regular stops for 2020 presidential candidates. But the same thing hasn't happened at smaller facilities like the GM Distribution Center in Martinsburg, West Virginia, which only employs 88 workers. So the group is down to three. Diehards holding signs and waving at cars. So you decided that you wanted to go out there and talk to some of the workers who were striking and spend an entire 24 hours with them. That seems crazy. <laughs> you have to talk to my editor about that. Uh, we, we hashed this out together. It was a long day out there on the picket line. Uh, it's 12.05 p.m. here. The Route 9 picket line, Martinsburg, West Virginia. Um, it's another shift change. There's only 88 or 89 employees at that facility who are in the union, but still they're staffing two picket locations around the clock. One of these gentlemen, Sam, has been out here since 3 a.m. last night. There are four six-hour shifts throughout the day, and so 
people are like assigned to shifts and then they just show up every day at, between those hours just standing there holding signs? For, for the most part, yeah. Uh, workers don't get paid by GM uh, for the duration of the strike, but they do get some union pay. And I believe to qualify for that pay, they're sort of required to, to show up at the picket line. But in general, you're supposed to be down here, what, five days a week? or Every other day. But there's also a sense that they want to show up at the picket line to sort of stand in solidarity with their fellow workers and educate the community around them and what's going on. We have a lot of good support driving up and down. Actually, we do. <laughs> People stop and hand over money. Oh, yeah? yeah. Yeah, some lady, she pulled up and she says, she says, it's not much, but here, she gave us $12. And I'm like, well, what, what do we do with this? And going into it, what were you trying to find out from being there for an entire day? Well, the strike has gotten a lot of attention at the national level. It's been a visit of for 2020 candidates. President Trump has tweeted about it. But really, the strike is a collection of these smaller experiences of workers deciding that something is worth fighting for that means they shouldn't go to work. And where that's happening is on the picket line. Just something I've, you know, my dad actually retired from General Motors here. He worked here? For a long time. Also, tell me about some of the people that you talked to and, and what they said about why they're there. It's a lot of things, and a lot of it has to do with the specifics of GM's contract with the union. Is it worth it? Is it worth all this? Weeks without pay, being out here every night? Yeah, I mean, for someone like me, I'm 62, but I'm here for everybody. So one of the people I talked to, Jerry Vanderwist. I owned a local furniture store for 33 years in the area until a few years ago. He had worked at GM for just a couple of years. He had been a furniture store owner. Now I almost feel I never was associated with the union before, okay? This is a first for me the last couple of years, too. But here he was out there standing on the side of the road holding a UAW sign and saying that his opinion about that had really changed. What do they do when there aren't people there to talk to or when things are really quiet? Um, just kind of shooting the breeze. We play in fantasy football league at the <laughs> talking fantasy football. <laughs> talking about work. Talking about which supervisors of yours have driven by. And I was out there on the overnight shift, and some of the guys. That was when it got really slow. We're sort of starting to um, play games, like guessing the the color of whatever the car that was going to come would be. <laughs> At halftime, it would be like kind of so, nodding off. And then, <laughs> So for the people that you talk to, do they feel like there is enough national attention on the strike and what they're fighting for? I think there is a sense if you talk to people, they were sort of saying that they did feel like they were part of something bigger, right? You know, labor unions have declined in numbers over the last decades. But there is this energy in that world right now. There was a teacher strike in West Virginia in 2018 that was kind of big deal in which teachers held out and won some concessions from the state. So even though unions have declined in numbers over the years, I think there's a sense that there's a little bit of momentum in the world of union organizing. But that also spills out into other workplaces that aren't union organized. We're seeing an immense amount of activism in the tech world. We're seeing employees like workers at Amazon warehouses getting organized, maybe not with unions explicitly, but organizations that have worked with unions before and sort of getting together organizing to speak out on issues of concern to them. So I think there is this feeling that 
the tide is turning a little bit. Employees are getting more willing to fight and speak out for things they want. So I think there is a question about whether, you know, if this effort goes on and, and is successful, if workers do come out winning some, some good concessions from GM, um, you know, that's how these things keep spiraling is they might inspire other strikes. They could inspire other workers just to get involved um, with a walkout or a petition. What does GM say about why they don't feel that it is necessary or wise to meet these demands from these workers? So GM has been constantly trying to maintain its footing uh, against foreign automakers who have production plants in the United States. The foreign automakers, I think across the board, don't have unionized workforce. So their labor costs are significantly lower. So General Motors is paying in terms of labor significantly more already than the companies it's trying to compete with. Is there a sense that this is going to be resolved soon? Or the fact that there are 50,000 people who are striking and basically disrupted GM's ability to produce things for the time being, is that putting extra pressure on the company to find a way to get these workers to come back to work sooner rather than later? Both sides have ways of thinking they were part of something bigger, right? You know, labor unions have declined in numbers over the last decades. It's a little bit of a war of attrition in terms of who's going to sort of fold first. So it's not really clear how long that's going to go on. It's not really clear how big the appetite is on either side for this. But I do think we're seeing um, both sides ready to sort of dig in their heels and certainly the workers saying that this is something worth fighting for right now and worth taking a stand. Eli Rosenberg is a business reporter for The Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now one more thing. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a set of cases that test whether federal discrimination laws protect gay and transgender workers. The Supreme Court is debating a pretty blockbuster question. Is it legal to fire someone for being gay or transgender? My name is Caroline Kitchener, and I'm a staff writer for The Lily. I knew that for a case like this, a case that's about a real hot-button political issue, there was going to be a really long line. There are only about 50 spots in the gallery of the Supreme Court to see any given case, and I knew that a lot of people were going to want to be there for this one. So as soon as you walk up... Cool, all right, so where are you guys from? Are you from here? You just see this long, long line stretching all the way from the Supreme Court building, the bottom of the steps, all the way around the block. 
and everybody's got camp chairs, they've got sleeping bags, they've got bags of food. So there were people there in the line from both sides of the issue, but everybody told me to go to the front of the line and talk to Eddie. So Eddie, yeah, I'm gonna sit down right next to you. You sure? Because Eddie got there 71 hours before the Supreme Court was gonna hear this case. Uh, Saturday morning, I got here at 9.30 a.m. And what day are we now? We're Monday? We're Monday. Eddie Reynoso has done this before. He was there for Obergefell v. Hodges. That was the case that made same-sex marriage legal across the country in 2015. Everything is like a pendulum, you know? It swings one way and it swings back the other. This case, which I feel, in my personal opinion, it's more important and has larger ramifications than the marriage cases, right? I think we've become so complacent and fatigued that uh, we're not waking up to what's at stake. I think Eddie really sees waiting in line as a kind of calling. For him, it is an opportunity to constantly be talking to people and answering questions because throughout the entire day, from early in the morning to late at night, people are coming up to him and saying, hey, what are you in line for? What is this? What is everybody here for? And then he gets the chance to say, well, actually, we're here for the Supreme Court case. They're deciding whether it's legal to discriminate in the workplace against gay and transgender people. And what he said is that overwhelmingly he heard people be like, wait, what? Isn't that already law? So he really sees this as an opportunity to educate people who come across him. Federally, across the country, there are not protections in the workplace for LGBT people. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act protects against discrimination on the basis of sex and religion and race and national origin and a bunch of other things, too. The question here is, does sex extend to gender identity and sexual orientation, too? Caroline Kitchener is a reporter for The Lily, focused on women and gender. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. We love to hear about how our stories connect with you. Yesterday, we heard from Sarah B. Roberts, who tweeted about last week's story on the 21st century revival of The Circuit Preacher. Sarah said that her great-grandfather was a Methodist circuit preacher in South Texas in the late 1800s. He carried a crystal communion set that never chipped or cracked, even though he rode around on horseback. Share your thoughts on a Post Reports story by tweeting at me or using the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548.
Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.